Welcome to the Uphill Athlete Podcast, where our mission is to elevate and inspire all mountain athletes through education and celebration. My name is Steve House, and I will be your host today, along with Alisa Clark. We are continuing our mountaineering series with a special guest from our staff who specializes in helping athletes stay healthy and injury-free. We're pleased to welcome Pete Dickinson onto the podcast. Pete is a licensed physical therapist and has a board-certified specialization in sport. He has served as a physical therapist for the U.S. ski team and is an avid athlete himself. He's here today to discuss prehab for training and to make sure you are ready to begin your mountaineering training. Thanks for joining us today, Pete. Uh, thanks, Steve and Lissa. It's great to be here. Uh, mountain athletes have been a, a big part of my practice since the very beginning. And I really enjoy working with um, uh, clients that have um, uh, uh, high demands placed on them and then have big goals. And of course, it doesn't have to be, you know, a um, elite uh, gold medalist that has high demands on them and big goals. It can be uh, just us common um, uh, participants out there that are trying to get out in the mountains, but need some help. Agreed. And I think actually our athletes create a unique situation because a lot of them actually have very high work demands. And so it's figuring out how to balance that training with the work um, demands that they have, as well as the travel. Um, I know a lot of my clients are very busy people, but we are Really excited to have you today, Pete, and excited to hear about the role of physical therapy in training because I think that we tend to think of it as more of a reactive um, part of our training. And so I'd like to hear how perhaps we can change that mindset into thinking of it as more active. Um, but first, though, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and how you became to became involved in physical therapy and also working directly with the U.S. ski team? Well, it's a journey like many of us. I actually came out of college with a degree in psychology, but then I quickly uh, moved west uh, as quick as I could um, and worked uh, uh, for some uh, outdoor education programs for people um, with disabilities. And so it's kind of adaptive um, outdoor ed. Uh, so we had both summer and winter programming and through that, I became, um, interested in, uh, physical therapy, he was riding a chairlift with a buddy and asked him what he did. He said, pre-physical therapy. And that sounded like a good fit for me. And then prior to that, I'd been with Knowles, uh, teaching with them for a little bit. So just love the outdoors and, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a great fit for me. Um, and then for the team stuff, um, I started working in uh, Park City, had a practice there, and that was where the uh, U.S. ski team is uh, is headquartered and started treating their athletes uh, in the clinic, then was asked to start traveling with the team. So my first team in the 90s uh, was with the men's downhill team. So uh, and then I subsequently moved to Winthrop, Washington, which has a big cross country um, uh focus and started traveling with the U.S. cross-country team. It's kind of like the difference between NASCAR and Formula One. You know, the downhillers are getting banged up all the time, big surgeries, high demands. But then the um, the endurance crowd with cross-country, uh, it's, it's more um, like tuning a Ferrari. 
uh, Matt Woodcomb used to characterize it. It's um, more subtle work, more focused on recovery. And that's really helped me um, broaden my, uh, my background in, in treating the, the high demand uh, uh, individual. Well, that's how we first met, Pete. I remember walking into your clinic in Winthrop, Washington, probably back around 1997 or 98 or 99, somewhere in there when you probably weren't even open yet. And I was a 20-something-year-old climber with a pretty serious uh, injury that had resulted from a crevasse fall where I had... Uh, basically torn most of my hamstring off of <laughs> one one of its attachment points in the back and you helped to nurse me through that i was uh quite some time ago so it's nice to still be uh working together albeit in, let's say more positive ways now <laughs> yeah no you you were a little bit of a train wreck back then that was uh that was for sure not subtle subtle therapy back then so <laughs> yeah that was not subtle therapy so let's let's go back to uh you know sort of the focus of this episode is is we want to talk about prehab specifically so what does that mean to a physical therapist and how does an athlete know how how would an athlete know if they're ready to begin a structured training program whether that's in a training group or with a coach or from a training plan how how does one know yeah, that, I mean, that's a hard thing because we all come to these things with our previous injuries or, or activity uh, background. And where does that place us on the continuum of being ready to take on um, a structured plan? Um, and how do we know that? Um, uh, and so when I look at prehab, getting ready for an activity, I think about having a great strength um, background. Um, uh, because strength is, is really essential for all these activities. And maybe we'll talk about durability uh, a little bit later. Um, but having a, a good enough, um, strength basis in which we can tolerate all of our aerobic activity without developing all the tendonitis and, and tweaks. Um, so that's a good starting point. Uh, can I, uh, perform without, um, uh, uh, getting injured or, can my current condition with my my injury history or whatever whatever I have right now will that allow for uh, further training? But it's it's all about this continuum, and everyone's individual about that, and that's that's what I love having a coach help uh, determine that. And then we, I know at athlete, we have a team of of people to come in and provide additional insight with the nutritionist. Um, uh, physical therapy, uh, you know, and the teams that I work with, we have a staff attending to these athletes. When we're out there uh, and we're not in a team setting, we don't have that anymore. And so that's why I like having a, um, a setup where you can get coaching, you can get physical therapy, nutrition, all these other services. I think that that's kind of the basis of all of this is that every athlete is an individual. And so that's part of the challenge of making these podcasts. It's part of the challenge of more group training. But if we were to say separate athletes into two categories, uh, we'll say category one is coming off of a more prolonged break. So say three plus months. Um, I know some people we get, it can be, I haven't really been consistent for five years. I've worked at a desk job. 
um, versus an athlete who took a bit of downtime in between seasons, but still has a strong base. So say an athlete who maybe took two or three weeks off just as a rest season, how do you treat them differently? And what are you looking for in these athletes as say you are assessing them for readiness to get back into things? Well, the easy one is just coming off a short season or an off season, getting ready uh, to get back to your, your focused uh, goal-oriented activity or project that you have coming on uh, that you've taken on. So uh, with that, typically you're pretty good with your aerobic activity. You've, you've been active, um, but you haven't maybe been as focused about your strength activity. So that'd be um, returning to lifting heavy things and getting your, your strength basis elevated so that as you then start increasing the volume of your aerobic activity and the intensity, um, uh, and then adding terrain that you can do that gradually. Now for all groups, we have this rule pretty much 10% rule. And the 10% rule is that you, your, our bodies are amazing. We have this 10% uh, ability to overreach, to increase our volume, intensity, load, whatever by 10% and we can adapt. In fact, it's a stimulus for adaptation, but if we double it, or triple um, uh, what we uh, are normally used to doing, then uh, that increases our ability to, or the chance of reacting and, and getting injured. So tying into what your increases are is really important wherever you are on that continuum. Um, so you don't uh, um, suffer from uh, OES, which is our overenthusiasm syndrome, which we are all guilty of doing. Um, and that's how we get into trouble because we get so excited. It is so fun to be out outdoors, to be hiking up, getting up that hill, love, put a hill in front of me. I just love that. But uh, that makes it uh, easy uh, to over, overreach and, and cause a, a problem. Um, for someone that is coming newer into an activity or with a long layoff, then a lot more care and attention is, is how do we increase minutes of activity? And we try and narrow down these other extraneous factors with, with terrain, try and get easier with terrain and just increasing uh, minutes of activity. Um, and then layering in, uh, so you're layering in volume first, and then you'll start sprinkling in some intensity, uh, maybe adding in terrain because we want to get folks uphill. Uh, and then, just build the strength, build the strength, build the strength. Strength makes everything good. So one of the things that I'm hearing so far, a theme I'm picking up on both of your responses so far is that the athlete kind of knows themselves, right? Like whether, whether it's somebody returning from an injury or whether somebody's trying to assess themselves for prehab, they, they kind of have a sense of themselves already. They know, you know, I know what injuries I have sustained over my career, right? You don't necessarily know that I'm meeting me for the first time, but I know, and I'm going to come in, I'm going to, you know, you're my PT. I'm going to tell you about some of that. I'm going to give you my history and so on. And so this kind of leads me into my next question. You know, how can an athlete assess on their own whether or not they're ready to start training in a healthy way? I mean, Elisa talked about these two kind of use 
cases of like a, a really long layoff or a planned layoff. But is there some sort of like yardstick? I mean, I know my body. I know what injuries you say. I need to be strong and strength. How did you say it? Strength takes care of everything. But how do I know I'm strong enough? And what what about alignment? I mean, these are the things like what am I over strong in one area? Am I underdeveloped in another? Like, how do I figure that out? How do I approach that problem? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, of course, the most important thing is to know yourself. Um, uh, and uh, knowing yourself means to be able to interpret the stories we have in our head that are pushing us to do things maybe we shouldn't do. And so taking care of that, that side of, side of the coin, because um, that can, you can really get in your own way a lot. Uh, if you're not listening to how your body is responding, because you're so goal-oriented that you're you're just going to push ahead regardless. So you have to be careful of 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 that quality and that characteristic. We love that goal orientation. That push is required at times, um, uh, but in the preparation training process, it, it can often uh, get in the way. Um, things that we look at on on readiness is function, how you're able to do things. How are you able to, to hike, to go uphill, to go downhill, handle varying terrain, um, and then how you adapt to that, uh, how much of that volume or that activity, uh, how much fatigue does that cause? Are you able to do that on repeat days? So some of these self-assessments um, are important for your readiness to take on activities. Uh, and then again, knowing what you're doing now, uh, extrapolating out um, a little bit more. Okay, can I get started doing this? Uh, and that 10% rule can come in 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 uh, handy with that. So knowing what you're doing currently, it's just like any marathon training. We we've got this goal out there, and, but we're here. So we got to draw a line to get up to there. Uh, and we're adaptive. So you can just start chipping away at it from wherever you're at. You can achieve, as you know, Steve, any goal that, uh, uh, that you set as long as you uh, are, are cognizant of, of how much time that's going to take and the support that you need uh, for that. Uh, yeah, it may take and the a size of the steps that you take along the way, right? Like not taking too big of a chunk. It's, right. So I'm hearing right. the mistakes made when you got this big goal, but you have a really limited, and you're at your preparation is at a low level, and you don't have a, a time to allow your body to adapt. Then you're really going to overreach and um, uh, get into issues uh, with that. Our body's an adaptive organism. It's a biological process, though, and that takes time. Yeah, time is your friend. Time is your friend. Strength is your friend. <laughs> These are themes that are uh, coming to the surface. You got a lot, of, a lot of friends out there, coaches, support and staff. Uh, your community is, is huge in this um, yep. uh, because there's a lot of knowledge out there. You haven't, trust me, you haven't made all the mistakes. You may have made most of the mistakes, but there are other mistakes out there that you haven't made that you can um, uh, learn those lessons from other people. And then just the support. We love, we don't want this to be an individual process. Uh, my, my team members will all, all report that um, being an, an elite sport is a isolating, selfish activity at times. Um, and they're not selfish people. 
but their activity kind of forces them to pigeonhole themselves um, into uh, who they can meet, what they can do, their social life. Um, uphill yeah, athlete. I know that well. well I knew that for years. <laughs> right. Yep. Um, so, so tapping in the community can be hugely uh, supportive and, and beneficial. I think that's actually the sign of someone who is trending towards success or has found um, success at a high level is that they have a team around them. That's um, granted. Steve is, is a much, you know, higher athlete than I am at this point. But one of the things that I've noticed in my own uh, athletic pursuits is that as I've built a team up, the better that I do, because I know who to go to when um, I'm having trouble. And the other point that I think has come up a few times, and Steve brought this up in the last episode, is the narrative that you tell yourself. And so I think that one of the things that we struggle with is, is that narrative accurate to what you, where you are? And I think sometimes it's very easy to tell a story that might not be completely true because either you really want it to be that way or you're protecting protecting yourself from the vulnerability of what that story could reveal. Um, and so I think it's really helpful to have a team that helps you to question that narrative to make sure you're on the right track of like, maybe I'm not ready for this yet. So it's funny that that, that kind of internal narrative has come up, the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I've spoken to thousands of athletes in the last seven years of up till athletes existence and that have come to us for coaching or training groups or, or whatnot. And the ones that have the most unrealistic plans are the, and as I think back, are often the ones that were the most isolated. They, they'd never, in many cases, done the sport. Like, I want to climb Everest without supplemental oxygen three months from now. And, well, how much mountaineering have you done? Well, I've never been mountaineering. It's like, oh, okay. Well, you know, okay, we got to start at the beginning here. And sometimes you can, you know, course correct with, with those people. And sometimes it, it's a lot, sometimes it's a sh- conversation sometimes it takes years and sometimes it takes some time to get the buy-in but i think that this community connects back to physical therapy and prehab and knowing if i'm ready because that's probably often a great reference point as to whether or not you know you are going to be able to start a endeavor with a structured training plan and remain injury free and continue to adapt uh, as as we should given the right time frame you know our, our community and that's that's one of the things i think is so important with uphill athlete is is creating a community or a bunch of little mini communities all over the world that, that where people start to connect over this over training and and correct correctly adapting to improve um, their, not only their, for their sports, but for their lives and start to have these people to have these discussions with. And, uh, you know, some of that starts right here, but I think this is really, really key. Yeah. I mean, I, I often see people come with, um, with maybe expectations that are, that aren't uh, in line with reality a little bit, but you'll also see people that, They've tried. They tried on their own, and they keep on getting spit out because their progressions aren't aren't. Uh, um, uh, there, there's some training errors being being made, and so that's why I love when you can have a training plan or a coach 
and then a support team, and then uh, uh, you can really reduce your your training errors. And when you reduce training errors, you reduce injuries. Uh, you reduce all the Achilles tendonitis, patellar tendonitis, um, foot issues that I hear so much about. Um, uh, usually, most injuries are uh, training errors uh, in, in that in that regard. And then that's balanced by you get someone with big hours of training. Um, then that's a different uh, issue because then odd things happen when the body's under that much stress for so long a period of time. Then you can see some odd things that it really helps them to have a, an experienced eye looking at that because they're not usual. They're going to be missed. And my, my bigger R athletes are, are the ones that teach me the important lesson of listen to your patient because they'll, they'll tell you uh, if, if you pay attention to uh, what's going on. Yeah. But those are the people that need an in-person physical therapist. So, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Uh, you'll see all sorts of autoimmune stuff or, or just uh, strange presenting uh, conditions. So, uh, so how should we think about physical therapy? I mean, I, I originally thought of PT as reactive work, but should we be thinking of it as everyday active work and injury prevention? What does that look like and what can we do to help our athletes take on this, this more active preventative point of view of physical therapy? Right. Well, yeah, it's, let's see. Um, uh, it's, uh, prehab isn't just under, uh, physical therapy, it's strength and conditioning, um, coaching. Well, we all have our finger in that pot of getting someone ready, um, uh, uh, for, uh, the imposed demands that are coming. Um, and when you need physical therapy is when you have a loss of function, um, loss of range of motion, uh, you have an acute injury or you have a chronic injury you haven't been able to overcome. Those are good. Uh, those are good, uh, conditions for a physical therapist to put their, their eyes, um, on you, uh, and to give some some insight into some directions you should be going that would be maybe counter to the stock. Um, okay, I just want to do deadlifts, I want to do overhead presses, pull-ups, things like that. Uh, because we're all individual and we all need a, um, uh, it will benefit from an individualized approach. Um, so the other part of that though is I like being involved on the prehab throughout the whole process because we like little tweaks and little injuries not to become big things. And that's kind of the team concept why you have someone kind of involved is that uh, you don't want to let things develop uh, because you're just ignoring it. Uh, so you want to treat little injuries so they don't become big injuries and then you don't lose training time. And that's, you know, that, that, uh, uh, that preparation period of time where we're trying to continue to increase, increase, increase volume or intensity uh, and prepare for that big event. We don't want to, our, our big, um, uh, the big thing that gets in the way is we lose time uh, due to injury. We don't want to sacrifice that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that goes back to truly the, the secret of, athletic performance and training is consistency. And so if you lose that 
time, you are losing that consistency. Um, but I mean, so on a more positive note, I would be curious. <laughs> I know it's, yeah, I feel like sometimes with physical therapy, I'm sure you feel this at times. It can, it's like you're, you're the doctor of you're seeing people when they're perhaps not at their best, they're coming in injured or tired, you know, things just haven't been going well, but to flip that script a little bit, what commonalities do you see with athletes who have built, and I love this word, durability? Um, so athletes that are doing things right, that are able to keep that consistency and stay healthy. Um, so durability, that really speaks to um, uh, someone that uh, has um, uh, greater training hours. They're active consistently uh, throughout their week. Um throughout their month and throughout their years. And they have years background of being very active, uh, being exposed to a lot of load typically. So either uh, self-imposed through strength training or through their work conditions. Um, and they, uh, they have good learning behaviors. They learn from their mistakes so they can keep in the game. You don't accumulate hours over many years if you get spit out. So usually you have to have good learning behaviors, uh, keep your injuries manageable, uh, early treatment um, uh, is important. They also know how to manage fatigue. They're comfortable with fatigue. Their durability usually speaks to someone that's very motivated. So they don't mind accumulating fatigue, but then they recover. Fatigue is an important part uh, of uh, athletic preparation. You have to expose yourself to that so that you can adapt to it. Uh, and so uh, those are some of the characteristics of someone that's durable. They've been in the game a long time. They've handled load for a long time, but they, they have pretty good behaviors. Yeah, I've often thought about this with, with climbers that I've known where there are some that are as you say, durable, and there's others that just seem to be constantly injured. I think there's sometimes just a certain genetic component. Sure. <laughs> sometimes my conclusion. Um, some people have shoulders that are just never going to stay stable. And but one of the things that I've noticed is with the people, you know, and, and I've learned this the hard way multiple times, is taking those injuries and learning from them uh you know one example for myself is with uh, a shoulder issue that i developed when i was ice climbing a lot and then learning through you know research and physical therapy and talking to my community that i was weak in a certain way and then ever since then there's been a theraband hanging on a doorknob somewhere in every house i've, I've lived in and i i don't count reps or sets or any of that but i i do my certain little exercises and i just kind of it's sort of second nature it doesn't really take any time it doesn't take any energy but it does keep my shoulders healthy and i haven't had shoulder issues in over a decade because of adapting that behavior and i think that that's the kind of thing that is a small thing but can be really really helpful we're all individuals. We, we, we all have our special things. And Steve, what you speak to, uh, you identifying that, um, 
and it's different for everyone. For me, it's my spine. For Alyssa, it's it's nothing because uh, she can do ninety five marathons in ninety five days. But for for the rest of us, um, uh, yeah, we we have we have our uh, um, you know Achilles heel. We have something that we have to keep up on, and identifying that, knowing yourself, um, really goes a long way. Uh, towards keeping you in the game, uh, not losing training time. Well, I want to unpack this for a second because I'm curious. Like, you know, Alisa, tell us a little bit just about your 95 marathons and 95 days. I, I, I admit that I don't know that much about it. When was it? Like, what were they? Like, what was the whole idea? And then I want to, Pete to figure out why you didn't get injured doing that. <laughs> that is a, yeah, That this is a fun kind of, uh real life case scenario um so i well i i okay i won't add that part because we'll have pete unpack it but i began them uh in march of 2020 when we lived over in italy covid lockdown was very bad over there and i had a treadmill available to me, but we were not allowed to go outside. All my races were canceled for the season. And so I was trying to keep myself honestly from going insane because I am used to a high load of trading. And so I found myself just kind of mindlessly running up and down stairs in our house. And I was like, I have to do something that gives me a goal and focus. And so I originally planned to run a marathon every day until restrictions were lifted that we were allowed to go outside. So it's supposed to be 14 days to start. And then it quickly became something that just didn't go away. So I continued to run, uh, yeah, for 95 days. And that included an international move from Italy to Florida. So I ran on a German Air Force base in the middle of the night. I ran in three different states. And it was just kind of a wild journey that I never anticipated doing. It just kind of fell in my lap, we shall say. Wait, wait. wait. So you ran 95 marathons on a treadmill? I probably ran fif- uh, 50 to 60 of them on a treadmill because we were not allowed to go outside. That's still incredible. <laughs> that, wow. Yeah. yeah and okay. so to be clear, you came with a, a good training background for this because uh, I know you're a former skier and biathlete and have been exposed to um, – uh, uh, you were also what soccer player or um, lacrosse, uh, but also soccer. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and all those activities. That's a great, wonderful preparation for anything in life. Uh, we should all be so lucky to have that. Um, uh, so I'm curious: Did you do any maintenance activities uh, during uh, during your 95 marathons? So probably the best maintenance was a good diet and sleep. That, that is truly sleep. what yep. sleep was, is the magic elixir. If I did not sleep well, the marathon the next day was very hard. If I slept well, then the marathon was a lot easier. And so cumulative fatigue, managing that um, by sleep. I mean, you wake up and you're like, okay, I'm ready to go. Um, I did not, 
I think I stretched just a little bit, but honestly, it was more about energy conservation than pretty much anything else. Yeah, doing the big things first. You know, sleep and nutrition um, and probably also managing your pace and your your um, your train was really super consistent. So you're you're we have a principle called the said principle, the specific adaptation to the imposed demands. And after a while, your body has adapted to doing that running. And you started off, though, without with it being not much of a reach because you're probably fit and had a good strength basis to protect your joints. If you don't, if you're not strong enough going into it, your joints will see too much load. Your tendons will see too much load because they're not stiff enough for that activity. And you'll, you'll get into trouble uh, for that. So it probably helped you that you had a treadmill actually for a lot of it. As long as you're okay between the ears being on a treadmill for 60 marathons. Um, I think a lot of people would question if I'm okay between the ears, but I think that's uh, what makes me lovable. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even going to touch that. Um, So uh, the thing uh, we see with activity though, it it causes um, inflammation in your tissues. And with that, um, uh, with training, with anything you get, um, your fibers uh, get a little sticky. Um, they, they form bonds between each other in the fascia and you don't slide and glide. And then that starts skewing off uh, the vectors for all the force loads uh, on your foot and your kneecap and shoulder. Um, so uh, I, was, I was curious as to whether you're a pretty flexible person uh, to begin with. I am not. Ah. I am not very flexible. I will say... Oh, there was about three things I was going to say I noticed. Um, uh, Now I'm drawing a blank on what I was going to say. Oh, um, okay, here we go. Number one, I probably put on 10 pounds in the first 20 marathons because of inflammation. Ah, yeah. So that was something that makes exact sense to what you were just saying, that the inflammation um, added quite a bit of water weight. It did come off. My upper body then shrank to nothing, basically. And my quads were very strong. Um, My legs gained quite a lot of muscle. The other adaptations were that I could run a, I could run four marathons in a row within a minute of each other pacing wise. I had an exact pace that was exactly where my body was efficient. And I did not have to try at all to hit that pace. It was like a metronome. And what's interesting is that my coach uh, was actually going to have me come down from the marathons. Um, I ended up (laughs) getting sick. So wasn't able to finish them, hence 95, not 100. Um, But he was going to actually have me decline the mileage. So not just stop cold turkey because I had created such an adaptation to running the marathons. He felt that I would actually cause more damage if I just stopped rather than if I ramped down to say 20 miles, 16, 10, then rest day. So Yeah, and that's part of having a coach give you some guidance. Uh, during these uh, high demand um, uh, episodes. Um, yeah, no, it's a fascinating story. Just love, love that. And, and we've got 
a lot of athletes out there with a lot of different stories like that. I still have one question though, because I'm sure there are listeners in the car where Pete, you said, well, you played soccer and lacrosse. So that set you up. Like, I mean, we all played soccer and lacrosse. I mean, I didn't play lacrosse, but you know, we all did something like that when we were kids. Why, why that? Like, why did you hone in on that? Like what, like, yeah. So she skied and I mean, yeah, me too, but I could not have run 95 marathons in 95 days at any point in my life. So, so well, first what, off, are you, what are you getting at in that? What are you trying yeah. to say with, with that exactly? Well, first off, Steve, if, if you grew up in East Central Illinois, no, you don't have access to soccer or lacrosse. It's uh, back in back in the day. It was only football, basketball, and baseball. Yeah, yeah. I actually, you know, yeah. In full disclosure, I also did not have. I had no access to soccer or lacrosse. I had cross country running or football in this fall. Okay, so in in response to um, why some of these other. Uh, uh, activities are so good. Change of direction explosively with soccer and lacrosse or, or other sports. Um, uh, um, early on, especially, uh, develops ourselves physically and you get um, really able to tolerate eccentric load and change of direction, which I think relates really well um, to descending and ascending mountains and uh, handling varying terrain. Um, and when you expose yourself to that uh, early through your childhood, uh, I think that sets you up uh, to expand on that later than when if you just have a unilateral, um, no change, no high loads early on. You have to work a lot harder to develop that um, later okay. in life. That makes so that's, sense. I didn't think of that's that. That's why we, we want our kids playing all sports um, uh, to finding out what floats their boat and uh, – see if you can sneak in some strength training um, as well uh, so they understand how to pick up heavy things because uh, that's also a very useful um, preparation tool um, uh, for high demand activity. I also grew up running and hiking on technical trails, which I've kind of been told over the years that that small muscle strength and balance capability also coming from Nordic ski training does help uh, kind of long term. And so I think that I've just was lucky enough to have all of those factors come together. And I'm saying this right before I go race 100 miles this weekend, and I'm probably going to get blown up by an injury. <laughs> After this whole conversation, well, yeah, yeah, uh, no, I think you'll probably be pretty prepared. I, I'll be curious as to whether, um, but you returned back to your strength activities and, and regained because you didn't have the ability to do that for many months. You were just running. Correct. So, did you notice any difficulty transitioning to other activities um, after your ninety-five marathon days? Um, I certainly lost a tremendous amount of upper body strength. I mean, I truly, if, if you look at the body's ability to adapt, it adapted to the fact that I did not need upper body strength at all mm-hmm. to perform what I was asking it to perform. So that took a while to build back up. And I did focus on strength following the marathons more than I usually do. Right. So, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating how our, our body uh, transforms 
uh, with different types of training and over a period of time as well. So that should be very encouraging to anyone listening that they can make the changes. Um, uh, and we want you to make those changes um, with as little drama as possible and without making those training errors that we've all made uh, due to our overenthusiasm syndrome and knuckleheadedness. So, yeah, and this is also something that I would say we're going a little bit off of topic, but it's a little bit fun too. With people who do a lot of different sports as an adult, where they want to do it all, they're they're often frustrated because they are plateaued, and the reason they're plateaued is because their body doesn't quite know what to what adaptations to keep and which to get rid of. I know that when I was only high altitude mountaineering, my body looked in a certain way. <laughs> and when I was in a period where I was doing more technical rock and ice climbing, my body was very different. But during those periods, I was focused on those activities. And those, when I was high altitude mountaineering, it's legs and lungs. And when I was in technical climbing, well, it was a lot of upper body and a lot of arm strength and finger, you know, fingers to elbows. And your body looks a different way, but you, you do do adapt. And I was focusing on those things and not trying to do it both at the same time. It's very difficult to try to do multiple sports with different, different demands at the same time. And I often tell people, like, if you want to improve as an athlete, pick one thing. You know, let's, yeah, you can, you can, you can do three different sports, but you're only going to maintain at those three three sports. If you want to improve as a runner, let's 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 pick running and and build you up and improve your running for a period of time, and then you can go back to doing those three sports, and you can probably keep that running at a higher level for a long time, period of time, but and may perhaps work on something else, but you can't elevate multiple capacities at the same time. It's too much. Yeah, you. We have a saying: uh, you get good at what you do. So yeah. um, uh, that's where you want to have the focus. You want we in in sport training we talk about general preparation phases and then specific training, which really sure. sharpen you up for that activity. And you, you have to be going from general to more specific. Uh, I know on our U.S. cross country team, there's a lot of very specific cross country skiing. And then strength twice a week. So it's yeah. kind of even in a in a hyper focused endurance sport, um, they also uh, don't like to lose the strength support uh, yeah. for all those specific activities. And Makes I think sense. that's mimicked in, in many many uh, many uh, many events. And that's what we do with our training plans. It's what we do with our athletes. Is that base period of more generalized fitness in aerobic and strength training. And then as you're getting close to the event, it gets more specialized for sure. Um, so I'm glad to hear we're kind of tracking on all levels. But if there were two to three exercises, and maybe this is an unfair question, but if, if you could have an athlete do two to three exercises every day that would potentially reduce the risk of injury, what would they be? Ah, I love this question. This is great. Um, okay, number one, for strength and mobility, to do one exercise, uh, one to rule them all, uh, would be a floor to stand get up. 
and for uh, Turkish getup. Um, and for those that uh, don't know this, what you what you do is you lie down on your back, you press up a heavy kettlebell, and then you go from straight on your back. There's some dance moves basically to go up onto your elbow, to go up onto your knees, and then to stand up with that weight overhead, and then to reverse it. Now, uh, the interesting thing about that activity is it, it requires immense core strength and stability. It also helps with a lot of mobility, especially through your thoracic spine, which many of us lack. Um, so it's good for the back, good for the upper back, the thoracic spine. Um, and it's uh, a big strength movement, both for your shoulders and your legs. So if there's one activity to incorporate on a regular basis, it would be a, a Turkish getup. Number number I, two. I absolutely love, hate the Turkish getup. Yeah. Oh, well, you did ask for the easy ones. <laughs> right. So it was just one. Pick, pick the hard one that would really help actually with your durability to going from Florida standing as picking up a heavy weight that uh, really uh, stiffens you up. And the strength game is a tension game. So we like learning how to be stiff and control heavy load. The second one, maybe going in a different direction, is with our, all of our other activities, we create uh, these localized inflammation from micro trauma or for just working hard in our tissues. And so to uh, release those bonds, those bonds are temperature dependent. So if you just create some friction, they release and they start sliding, gliding better, and you reduce all, some of the negatives of chronic uh, training. And that's just going on a foam roll and rolling out your legs and your hips and your back and your arms. And it can be just with a simple three-foot foam roll. Uh, and so we really like that for loosening up your whole fascial system. Um, uh, to take away some of the negatives of chronic and, and heavy training. And then uh, number three also speaks to recovery. And with a lot of training and a lot of activity, we're, we have our sympathetic nervous st uh, system is stimulated. And it, if that keeps going all the time, you don't recover from the training. Um, and so you're not getting the benefit from that. So we like doing things that that activate our parasympathetic nervous system. And that's through the vagus nerve, vagal nerve. And one of the, there's two things that really help that is foam rolling that stimulates the baroreceptors in your deep in your tissues, which activate your parasympathetic nervous system. So foam rolling is nice. And then the other thing is deep, slow nasal breathing. So doing like a, um, a two or three second inhale and a six second exhale through your nose. And we, we think now that, or there's some, uh, uh, some theories that with all of our uh, meditative yoga, all these other restorative activities, one thing they have in common is deep nasal, slow nasal breathing. And so I encourage you to incorporate something uh, with that. Uh, it helps with stress, helps with a lot of things. So those were the three things. Pick up something heavy and go overhead. Uh, roll out your tissues and um, uh, deep, slow nasal breathing. Those are three really good ones. So I think that that's kind of leads me into thinking about 
you know, recovery again, particularly you mentioned the foam roller. We talk about foam rolling a lot. How should an athlete differentiate between, you know, delayed onset muscle soreness from training or a potential injury that's coming on? Is there a, what, how do you talk about that with, with, with patients and athletes? How do you, what are the cues that they should be looking for that we should be looking for? Yeah. And we talk about treating injuries uh, at a low level so they don't become big. So it gets a little bit harder when, uh, and I tweak that a little bit. Is that really something or not? Um, uh, we look at uh, if you have a um, uh, loss of function, your ability to do something, be able to pick something up, uh, put that plate in that upper cabinet, um, uh, do something you're used to doing. Is that now getting difficult to do or painful? Um, uh, a loss of range of motion. Uh, if you're getting stiffness or you can't move uh, in, uh, overhead or do a deep squat, things of that nature. Or you're, uh, you're getting some gait impairment. You're starting to have a hitch in your gait when you're running or hiking uphill or walking. Uh, so those start concerning me more uh, if you're ticking those boxes. Uh, um, of course, any swelling or deformities. Uh, but your training history also will help guide this. Um, uh, if you've just done a heavy strength session, then getting some, uh, some muscle soreness, uh, some DOMS from that would be expected. And I would, I would give you a few days to make sure that that should clear within 48 hours. Uh, and you can move on from that. But if something is lingering and I, I give it a pretty short leash, one to two weeks, then we want to start addressing it right away. Um, and not let things go on, uh, for longer uh, than that. Cause then we start losing training time. Uh, we can usually do very quickly with some mobility, some kinesio, some supportive strapping, um, some other techniques that we have to mobilize tissues, loosen things up, um, uh, look back over training history, making sure we don't have a training error and to correct that. Of course, coaching is so important with all that. And again, I'll just reiterate uh, with a coach or a, a plan, you really reduce your risk of injury because you're not making training errors. That's, that's the foundation for all this usually. That makes sense. So it sounds like, I mean, a lot of it is knowing yourself to know when things are different than they usually are, which takes training history. Sorry, that's a, a funny way to put it, but but essentially being able to know your training history to know, okay, that's usually an easy exercise. Something's different about it. Here's a red flag. Right. And, but your knowledge base for with an athlete rise on a continuum. You know, some people that are very, um, uh, that have made a lot of mistakes. They have a lot of experience. And so they, they can tap into that. Then you get those that are just starting off and they kind of don't know, is it bad? Is it good? And so, uh, that's where having at least starting with a training plan and then we can adapt from there, uh, can be really, really helpful. Because built into that training plan are, is discrete progressions that aren't too big. Um, so that's what I like about that. Excellent. 
Well, I think that that just about wraps it up for us. This has been fantastic to hear all of your insight, Pete, and um, all the great stories. Is there anything else either of you would like to touch on? I would just like to quickly ask Pete, because I know that he performs online assessments of some of our athletes that come in that have uh, injuries that are often working with a coach. And Pete, how does that work? How does that look for people? How do you do that? Well, if you've identified with yourself that you need some help, that you've uh, struggled before, or you have an ongoing injury, that maybe you've, you've gone through a, a treatment phase, but you're not quite sure how to get back to that hopping on a plan and progressing from there. You know, is my injury going to slow me down? Am I ready um, at my current status to initiate something? Um, a lot of those can be uh, uh, just a, uh, uh, a consult um, uh, um, over Zoom or a phone. Um, if it's more involved, then we can um, go ahead and transfer into a more structured approach uh, with actual physical therapy activities. Um, so it kind of depends on on the needs of the ind individual. Uh, but I, I will will speak that probably one thing to add that I think it's very powerful to have goals in your life um, and to be uh, striving uh, for for something and that that pushes us further than we normally would um, maybe organically evolve. So uh, having strong goals, uh, I call it fear-based training because you'll do the work because you know it's really going to hurt if you, if you haven't done the work once you do your event. Um, but uh, I love hearing everyone's goals and, and the variety of goals uh, within the uphill athlete system. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah, we have a lot of great uh, community members out there doing a lot of amazing stuff. Yeah, I, th I think the good test of a goal is if it instills a little bit of fear, not too much, but at least a little bit, it's probably a good goal to aim for. Yeah, a little so. motivation, uh, uh, internal motivation uh, is, is, is good uh, within reason. Absolutely. Definitely. Well, thank you for listening to the Uphill Athlete Podcast. Pete, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we ask if you can rate, review, subscribe um, on all of the major podcast platforms or pick the one that you use. That's really helpful for us to reach a bigger audience. Um, so we really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And it is not just one, but a community. Together, we are up to athlete. Thanks for listening.